And would you say Rich Hill it has been effectively wild this year? Yeah, that's a good point. Not wild as in, you know, all over the place, can't yeah. throw a strike, but maybe just sometimes missing his spots with his fastball, mm -hmm. yeah. but still able to do damage with his breaking ball. Well, it seemed like a month since I kissed my baby goodbye. Could have a lot of women, I'm not like some other guy. I could find one to hold it tight, but I could never believe it's right. Six days on the road, I'm gonna see my baby tonight. Hello and welcome to episode 871 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. It's an email show. Anything you'd like to talk about before that? Did you see the thing about the Braves and the replay process? I did, yes. Uh, the, the Braves are unhappy with their replay reviewer because he didn't challenge in last night's game in a play that was certainly debatable and and possibly would have been overturned. Yeah, that's the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, uh, Craig, Craig Calcaterra says, quote, uh, others have speculated that the decision will be used as an overall basis for making wholesale changes, including the possible firing of Freddie Gonzalez. Uh, that's a yeah. very... It's a very, very loosely sourced uh, sentence. However, I, I wouldn't mind if a manager got fired for failing to, uh, to ask for a replay. Being a little slow on the replay trigger seems like the least of the Braves' problems <laughs> right now. <laughs> seems like they have some more pressing concerns, although I guess that is one that they could actually address as opposed to the never hitting a home run problem, which might be more difficult to rectify. Probably a bigger problem, though. Yeah, well, this is actually a test of a thing that I said when we in the off season. You and I talked about how wobbly Freddie Gonzalez's chair was. Yeah, and you initially uh, posited that it was not very wobbly; that there were no expectations for the Braves, and therefore there was nothing uh, that could you know really be done to uh, to not live up to those expectations. And and I argue that in fact, in situations like this, you sometimes keep the manager around specifically to f scapegoat and fire when things get bad and to sort of signal a shift toward better days ahead and the Braves are so have been so bad this uh, season this season so far that um, my claim will be disproven if he is not fired at some point soon I think yeah and if I had known that they would be slugging 280 as a team on April 27th I probably would have agreed with you I I don't know that he can be blamed for that, but man, the Braves are really bad. Pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> really bad. Um, and we were just talking last week about how tanking, the term tanking is overapplied and how there really isn't a clear case of tanking this season in the sort of Astros and Cubs model and that often what is called tanking is really just being bad at baseball accidentally, being bad without trying, or just normal being bad, as every team is bad occasionally. But if the Braves are this bad, and granted, they, they can't be this bad all season, but would that change your view of whether they qualify as tanking or not? Or is it not fair to judge by the results and you're going by how they have put this team together? Uh, not fair to judge 
on the results. Mm-hmm. I man, think that yeah. lineup. <laughs> I, look, if they if they start uh, if they start when when I wrote about the 2013 Astros and the uh, moral reckoning that that season demanded of us, um, I I I had a, a paragraph where I I conceded that the Astros were trying in September. They weren't necessarily. You know, they weren't adding players for a playoff push, but Altuve was in the lineup and VR was in the lineup. And, the, the you know, the few players that you considered major league contributors were playing every day. It's not like they were pulling them in the third inning like a spring training game or anything like that. And so, uh, you know, if the if you started to see signs that the Braves were um, uh, actually not interested in winning the game that you're watching uh, on the field, like then that would be something. But generally speaking... Generally speaking, once the game starts, you never really see a team that isn't trying to win. And if you ever see that, uh, then that would be uh, that would be the moment that we would all uh, get to talk about something new. <laughs> yeah, well, that would certainly be tanking, but it it's probably fair in some cases to talk about what the team does before the game starts and putting themselves in a position to oh, win yeah, yeah. or not win. No, definitely. I think that's that is true. I I I think specifically with regards to the results of a season in which they were projected to win, you know, 68 games or something like that. To me if you're projected to win 68 games and you try your hardest and you only win 58, it doesn't change the calculus. Um, right. and uh, so yeah, and like you know, if they start demoting players uh, who are otherwise, you know, good enough because they want to uh, you know, push off their service time or if they, you know, there were a bunch of guys getting shut down in August or if there were, uh, I don't know, you could, you could imagine situations where personnel moves would make you think that they've shifted even away from the 68 win forecast. But right now I just think they're a team that's doing poorly. Yeah, I'm not sure if they have any players good enough <laughs> to raise my raise the red flag if they were to bench them. I <laughs> they've already they benched Freddie Freeman, who was, you know, their best player and has been awful. So there's nowhere else they can go with that really. I guess if uh, we talk about promoting or not promoting prospects at some point, that could be something, but right now they seem to lack anyone good enough to make much of a difference. Anyway, no Rich Hill update. 3 years. Forty-two million dollars. It's a <laughs> okay. new. It's a new high. Yep. And uh, he's he's earned it. He certainly has another he, brilliant outing last what night. Seven innings, eight strikeouts, eight strikeouts, no, no walks, walks uh, shutout innings. Mm-hmm. He he is now five starts into this season with a two point four two ERA, a two point two point two five WHIP, uh, not WHIP, FIP, a one fifty six ERA plus. He is striking out 13 batters per nine, and in his nine starts since his return, he has a 1.96 ERA, a 2.26 FIP, and a 207 ERA+. plus. He is pretty close to peak Pedro over a nine-start stretch. I'm just saying he yeah. is over that nine-start stretch, and uh, it's, it's, it's just stubbornness now that you wouldn't join me. <laughs> I just played a clip at the beginning of the show of the A's announcers calling Rich Hill effectively wild last uh, night. That is exactly what he is, too. He really is. 
that's why he's become the patron player of this podcast in I'm, part. Yeah. It's, it's how he's done it as he much ha- as what he's done. He has not hit a batter in three straight starts, though. I believe that uh, that hunt is over. Uh, we can quit watching. Uh-huh. He leads <laughs> He leads baseball, but the pace has just fallen off completely. Okay. All right. Time for emails? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. By the way, by the way, nine starts, two wins above replacement for Rich Hill. So that just, I mean, you know, that's a, that's a 15, 16 million dollar return right there. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's, that includes the four last year. You don't get those if you sign them in the offseason, but like you don't have to do that much to be worth 40 million dollars. And he's right now, he's on a, that's a seven win season. Exactly. He's on a full season pace to basically be what Kershaw was. Mm-hmm. in the last few years and you don't need him to do it for very long for it to be worthwhile if you get him for three years and you can get you know one year of that you've totally cashed out okay go ahead <laughs> okay don't want you to leave any rich hill insights on the table all right so josh O says in the jake arietta no hitter highlight video on espn's website the announcer mentioned that the two previous teams to throw a no-hitter while also scoring at least 13 runs in the World Series era went on to win the World Series. Yeah. My question is, is this the worst World Series predictor ever? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, something actually this is a this is a pretty this is a good one too. I saw this one uh in my head 2 seconds ago and I'm now saying it out loud. Uh since World War II all 71 teams that started the season as the Cubs did not go on to win the World Series. <laughs> That's true. That has been highly predictive yeah. in the past, whether St- a team is the Cubs. Statistically significant, I believe. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's among the worst you could imagine. I don't know. There's probably some some astrological sign, World Series indicator that you could use that that would be just as bad, but pretty bad, pretty bad. Yeah, it's got everything. It's got everything. It's got the uh, incredibly uh, narrow parameters. It's got the incredibly tiny sample. But more than that, it's got the complete illogic of it. There is no, there is no like cause and effect where you would see the connection between one or the other. It is very much the rock that keeps the tiger away. And well, you're outscoring a team by 13 runs. Once. That's a indicator of team quality. You have yeah. someone who threw a no hitter. Maybe you've got an ace. Yeah. No, <laughs> so. I know. That's that's not enough. <laughs> that's not that's not no. like you could you could replace all those words with slightly different words and they would be you know basically the exact same sentiment except you would not have the connection to the world series right by the way rich hill entered mm-hmm. entered last season with a 96 career era plus and has lifted it to 101 this guy has gone from below average major league career to above average major league career in these nine starts like, like <laughs> if he were to retire today he could say an above average major leaguer. Yeah, that's true. You're, which <laughs> I, you, I'm just bringing it up because it doesn't matter how disappointing you think your life is right now. It only takes nine starts. You can be the next Rich Hill. <laughs> or you could be the Braves. That's and ruin everything. All right. Question from Jeff, also vaguely Arietta related. Hey guys, just got done listening to your podcast that concluded by talking about fun facts and how we all add or subtract certain things to make our fun facts more clearly fit a given narrative. I get it. I do it too. 
But one thing that I don't understand is why virtually nobody ever calls anyone out on eliminating the most important pieces of information on certain fun facts and streaks. For instance, with Jake Arrieta, you mentioned that people leave out a series of eight games during which he had a 1.5 ERA or something close to it because that ruined the narrative. But also left out is his 19 and two-thirds innings pitched in the 2015 playoffs during which he gave up eight runs. I understand postseason is different, but why is it left out of streaks and fun facts like this? The narrative is that Arietta has been totally untouched since, insert time frame in 2015 until now here, but the truth is, in two of his three most important starts since said time frame, he posted an ERA of 3.66. Hardly awful at all, and not bashing him, as you cannot argue with what he's done, but why do we leave out playoff games when they are more important than anything? Yeah, that's fair. It, the answer in a sort of boring procedural sense is just that it's not in the search filters that we're using. It's <laughs> yeah. like it, it there's there's a plenty of good reason to leave playoff stuff out of a lot of stats. Like if you wanted to see who uh ha- like it it's not necessarily fair, especially when you can now play 20 extra postseason games. It's not fair to compare, you know, uh guys season home run totals for instance counting stats uh and say well he you know he had more home runs than this other guy but he you know his season was 20 games longer i think we would all appreciate that that wouldn't make much sense uh so you know you don't have uh, the black ink going to the guy who you know, with, who played in the postseason and you include his postseason and so with that though then you have to like figure out a way to present a website that isn't ridiculously crowded and sloppy and mm-hmm. so it's just always been the norm that that postseason stats are separate, that they're not included, that you don't have to have some explanation for which ones you're including it on or or whatever. And so when Ben and I go looking for stats, uh, it's like a whole extra two or three steps, uh, sometimes more, uh, to add it up. And if you're looking at something that's kind of indexed, like if you're trying to do OPS plus or something. Uh, then you can't do it. It's impossible to include the playoff stats. And so it's just easier. And I find that most of the time that doesn't matter. Some of the time it does. I did a piece uh, after the postseason in 2012 uh, that mentioned the guys whose season stats changed the most uh, if you include their postseason stats. And there were some guys who went from having, you know, not great seasons to great seasons just by including the postseason stats into their raw totals, uh, on their rate stats. And then, of course, you have the Arietta example. But the Arietta example is the rare one where it tre- it tremendously changes your fun fact. It's also, yeah. though, I will agree with the writer, everybody, including me, who's tweeting these fun facts about Jake Arietta, is quite aware. Just like we were aware, for instance, of the whoever it was who hit the first home run off of Kershaw's curveball. Remember mm-hmm. that one? And yep. but but then I think there were like two that had been hit in the postseason. And it just, you know, it totally changes the fun fact. And most, I think, probably a lot fewer people knew about the Kershaw one, but we all sort of know and are are in denial about the Arietta starts. So is there, now, is there any reason, is there any good reason to exclude Arietta's postseason starts from a stat like this or from a fun fact like this? Or is it just pure, convenient, lazy, deceptive, fun fact, dishonesty? Yeah, I think in this case, it's it's probably pretty close to fun fact gerrymandering. Yeah. It's just, uh, I mean, in some cases, if you're talking about counting stats or something, then maybe you want to compare everyone on the same footing 
So certain players get to play in the playoffs and others don't. So you want to compare regular seasons because it's the same time span for everyone, same opportunity, and some guys don't get the postseason opportunity. But when you're talking about just a string of starts and a a run of dominance, there's no particular reason to omit those postseason starts other than convenience. I think obviously the conditions are different. I mean, the playoff competition is better and there's more pressure and the weather's colder and all those things, but we're not really adjusting fun fact stats for, you know, quality of opposition or anything because you could do that with regular season stats too. So it's it's different. Uh, you know, I'll sound like an old school baseball guy saying, you know, the postseason is a different animal or something, but I, it's there's no real reason when you're talking about consecutive starts to omit starts. Well, yeah, no, you're right. I think that there was a general consensus, though, that Jake Arrieta was totally gassed by the postseason. That yeah, like mm-hmm. people just That's watching true. people just watching him could were were saying it even before he was getting hit. Like even in I think even in the Pittsburgh game, the wild card game, which he threw a five hit shutout, struck out eleven, and walked none. I, I might be giving him too much credit, but I think even then, Sahadev made mention of the fact that he looked more tired or maybe it was like just in the first inning of the next start or something but and so there's maybe the maybe we're editorializing in a way by saying that you know we don't think that 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 that, like it was so deep into the season uh he hadn't thrown anywhere close to that many innings in his life before and maybe we're just saying trust us it doesn't it's not the same it does he shouldn't be penalized and neither should his fun fact for this, um, for this example of a start that clearly stretched him beyond normal conditions. Now, that's a slippery slope. Then could you could we then throw out the last start in September if he had gotten bombed in that, or could we throw out all of September because he hadn't pitched in September before or something like that? It becomes dangerous. And also, there's the fact that even in the two starts that we are conveniently ignoring, where he gave up four runs apiece, he in 11 innings struck out 17 and walked four, and the difference between those being great Jake Arrieta starts and what they were, uh, bad anomalies, is basically one pitch each that got hit over the fence in each of those starts. And so maybe we're unnecessarily giving him that leeway. Maybe he wasn't gassed at all. It's a it's tough to say, but you're right. I think that this is, I think this is an accurate criticism, and mm-hmm. um, we should we I think we we should all apologize. I Arietta. I uh, when I just googled him to get his baseball reference page, I see two headlines for him. Jake Arietta says he's flattered by accusations of PED use, and Jake Arietta sounds off on PED rumblings. Some people are idiots, which seem like two very different articles. <laughs> they sure do. They seem like like I I'm imagining Jake Arietta like two different people named Jake Arietta responding very differently <laughs> to this. Internet articles have sometimes deceptive headlines. New discovery on this podcast. All right. Question from Alex Coopersmith. I was in an argument with my friend about who the better third baseman was, Adrian Beltre or Chipper Jones. And I found out that Beltre had only made the All-Star game four times and not in 2004 when he got second in MVP voting. Jones was an All-Star eight times, but not in 1999 when he won the MVP. I know all-star appearances is in no way reflective of a player's all-time value, but I'm incredibly surprised how few appearances Beltre has had 
and how neither player made the All-Star game in their best year, are All-Star voters just incredibly stupid, or was there some other factor? Also, and this is probably the more interesting question, is Beltre or Chipper Jones the better third baseman? And they're really, really close, actually. Right now, right now, quote-unquote, well, Adrian no, that's Beltre. relevant because Adrian Beltre is active. Chipper yes, Jones okay. Adrian Beltre has a career 85.1 baseball reference war, and Chipper Jones has an 85.0 baseball reference war. So they have essentially had the same career value. Of course, Beltre is still playing and still productive, but I guess you could say that Jones had the higher peak, probably. Beltre started younger and took a while to become a superstar, whereas Jones was pretty great early on. So it's certainly, I think, a lot closer than maybe the average fan would acknowledge. I think Jones is sort of a no-doubt Hall of Famer, first ballot type of guy, probably for most people, and Beltre is not, but they are essentially the same player. Yeah, it's not enough to make a big difference, but I think Jones' career war is somewhat penalized by the uh, mid-career move of him to left field, which doesn't seem uh-huh. like that was that wasn't a reflection of his inability to play third base. He played a lot of third base after that, including some fine seasons defensively. Uh, but uh, I guess it was the Braves' needs, and so he loses a couple of wins because of that. He wasn't a good left fielder, and the positional adjustment is much harsher for left field. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah. I mean, I I think that I it, it's funny because I I think you and I would both probably guess that uh, we. Um, like Adrian Beltre much more than you know the average the average baseball fan. Like we would have, like you would walk into a party expecting to have to convince somebody that Adrian Beltre is better than they think that that he is. And yeah. yet, I I also consider Chipper Jones to be a lot better than him. And <laughs> and and so that and and I have no, uh, as you just listed, I have no real great reason for that. Yeah, I guess the what would be. Uh... Like, Beltres has a strange career shape. He had the the one fantastic season when he was 25 with the Dodgers, 2004. That was a seven-win season. That was his best season. But Well, look, it's the reason that we think that Chipper Jones is better is because even those of us who completely buy into the war model still prefer an offense-heavy war to a defense-heavy war. We trust it more. We notice it more. We see it in action more. It covers black ink on the page, and it gets you uh, all the MVP and all-star, all MVP votes and all-star appearances that make up this sort of second tier of black ink that, as Meg Rowley wrote in this great piece on Cole Hamels not long ago, I'll I'll just explain. She wrote a piece about how Cole Hamels has been uh, like the bad luck pitcher of his era as far as uh, run support and wins and losses. And we're all so smart that we don't even care about wins and losses. We would never look at that. But we are, uh, without realizing it, affected by seeing guys Cy Young votes and hearing him in the Cy Young conversation and seeing his all-star appearances. And when we click on his baseball reference page, that is a kind of black ink that affects us and affects our perception of a player. And since those voters... And since those accolades tend to come with things like wins and losses, we are sort of second, second-hand wins affected, if that makes sense, right? Uh-huh. And so it's the same, I think, with the type of wins that Chipper Jones produced and the type of wins that Adrian Beltre produced, 
one creates this page that is completely blasted with black ink and and uh, accolades and adrian beltrace is much less and it's the the wars are the same the defensive wars are 25 25 wins difference so we're this if we believe all of this we're saying that chipper jones was worth 25 more wins with his bat and adrian beltre was worth 25 more wins with his glove and i still think that even though we sh- maybe probably shouldn't i think that for the most part i I believe defensive metrics, especially over a long career. And uh, if you're in for the system, you got to be in for the system. Uh, but I still choose the offense guy most times. And um, so that's probably why. And I'm probably more wrong than I, I think. Yeah, Chipper Jones played four times as many postseason games, if that's something that you think should count in his favor. He was always in the playoffs because the Braves were always in the playoffs. And for Beltre, that's been a rarer occurrence. And yeah, the the career shape, like if you took uh, Chipper Jones's peak, his best seven seasons, which I think is what Jay Jaffe's Jaws system does when it balances career versus peak value, I think his best seven season stretch would be from age 24 to 30, which is, you know, very typical. It's probably the, the most common best seven season stretch. And by the way, he was a very productive old player too. He was, he had two of his best seasons at 35 and 36. He was great at that time, even though he wasn't particularly durable. But his prime was the typical prime. Whereas Adrian Beltre, if you took his best seven season stretch, he's probably in it right now. He's probably still mm-hmm. in his peak or his prime yeah. because he, yeah, he, I mean, he had the great one season at age 25, but then he just sort of scuffled along as a decent player for a while. And then at age 31, he became a, a superstar. So his age 31 through 37 seasons will probably end up being his best seven season stretch. And maybe that's something that makes it harder to see him as the kind of player that Chipper Jones was because we had already watched Adrian Beltre be a major league baseball player for, you know, over a decade before he really broke out other than that one exception season. So, for the first decade of his career, it looked like he was going to be a guy who just had one weird outlier season, and then he took that and became a Hall of Famer. So maybe it's hard to uh, to change our minds at yeah. that point. You're, uh, just to, to reinforce your point, his best season was 2000 and 2004. And then, yes, his next six best individual seasons, not just as a group, but discrete seasons, his next six individual best seasons have been the last six. Yeah. He's currently on pace to be just as good to join those this year, although yeah. that's mainly driven by 21 games of off-the-charts defense. Mm-hmm. So, uh I think it's fitting because, you know, so often when we talk about underrated, overrated, which is a completely unmeasurable social construct that is like often means nothing and makes no sense. But we talk about how a guy becomes is is called underrated for so long that he sometimes becomes under uh, overrated or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And it is nice to think that Adrian Beltre is so underrated that he's actually still underrated. Like there, there is a, he, he didn't back, you know, didn't backlash. It didn't come back around. He's still like the, even the people who are leading the Adrian Beltre is underrated brigade are still underrating him. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, I think I am happy about that. 
Yeah. It's weird that a player who is so much fun and also so good could be underrated because that's the thing. He's not like some uh, under the radar guy personality wise. He doesn't really just like blend into the pack. He's got the touching his head thing. He's got the Elvis Andrus thing. He is delightful. He is the subject of many highlight videos. And he also gets credit as a team leader, veteran mentor type. So he has all of that going for him. So there's really no reason why he should be underrated. All right, play index? Yeah. So I want to tell you about three pitching lines this year that had never happened before. Um, One of them was discussed at the time. It was Chris Archer's 5-5-3-2-3-12. That's five innings, five hits, three runs, two earned, three walks, 12 strikeouts. That was on opening night. Another one came uh, in Jose Fernandez's first start of the year, 5.255513, five and two-thirds innings, five hits, five runs, all earned, one walk, 13 strikeouts. And the last one came just a couple days ago, and this is what inspired this play index. It was Tanner Roark, who had the seven innings, two hits, no runs, three walks, 15 strikeouts, and the... Um, the individual number in each of those that makes them um, so so unique, uh, well, I guess it's two numbers. It's the number of strikeouts and the number of innings. Very few pitchers strike out 12 in five innings. Very few, and even fewer leave the game at that point. Very few strike out 13 in five and two-thirds. Very few strike out 15 in seven. And um, we've talked, uh, we in fact talked at great length last year when Corey Kluber was pulled from a game after Striking out 18 in eight innings, um, it is the position of this show, or at least one half of this show, that uh, a 20 strikeout, and particularly a 21 strikeout performance, is of far greater historical significance than a no-hitter, and yet managers uh, give great leeway to pitchers with high pitch counts in one case and don't in the other. Michael Bowman wrote a great piece about uh, whether the 19-20-21 strikeout game, which is considerably rarer than a perfect game, is in fact more impressive than a perfect game, and it's a very complicated question, in fact, uh, for various reasons that are worth reading. But as Michael notes, it's actually pretty hard to strike out 20 uh, without uh, create without a huge pitch count unless you're totally, utterly dominant. Uh, and if you are on pace uh, to strike out that many without being totally, utterly dominant, uh, you're in danger of getting pulled by your manager mid-start. And so I, what I wanted to see was how common these games are where a guy is on a reasonable pace to strike out 20 or 21, but is pulled anyway. So I went to play index. I went to the game finder, pitching game finder. I selected for starters only. I selected for at least three and a third innings. And I chose to have strikeouts be at least 2.1 times greater than innings. So if your strikeouts are at least 2.1 times greater than your innings, at the very worst, you're going to have 17 strikeouts through eight innings and have a clear shot at striking out 20. So first, just to get a little business out of the way, I named three that have happened this year, uh, which is, yes, is more than you would normally expect of these starts, as probably you're not at all surprised in a long timeline, these types of starts are going up, which makes sense because there are, of course, far more strikeouts these days and also 
far lower pitch count limits these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, if a guy has 12 through five innings, as Chris Archer does, uh, but he's already thrown 100 pitches, well, there's no real point. And so um, in the early 90s, there were very few, zero or one per year. Uh, in the early 2000s, there were more, three or four per year. That's actually pretty much through the 2000s. And then starting in 2010, two, four, six, 11, five, six, and this year, three. So three in the first month. Uh, you might think that these would be front-loaded to the beginning of the year. They are not, uh, in fact. And so um, you cannot say, well, it's early in the year. That's when these happen. They don't generally happen. Three in the first month is a lot. It is on pace to be the most ever. Only once have there been more than eight of these starts in a season. Only twice have there been more than six. This year might join them. But to the larger question, are managers generally pulling pitchers from games in which this is realistic? So I took the number of outs that the pitcher had gotten. I subtracted that number from 27 to see how many outs remained in the start for them to get their strikeouts. I chose the number 4.2 as how many pitches per out I'm going to estimate for them. That's low. Uh, Probably more fair would be something like five. But, you know, if you're going to break a record, you're going to do some things really well. Uh, So I want to give, I want to be optimistic and so I have 4.2 pitches per out. So maybe that's you know two strikeouts and uh, and a second pitch ground out or something like that, and that can do it. So uh, I added that the, the pitches remaining to the pitches they've thrown, and looked to see how many pitches roughly uh, that pitcher might have thrown if a manager had let him in to chase history. So first off, let me ask you a question: What is a worthwhile pitch count? for a pitcher to strike out 20 or 21. And let's assume that it's not Michael Pineda coming back from shoulder injury. Let's assume that it's not, uh, let's see, uh, Alex Cobb in his rookie year. Let's just assume that, you know, normal pitcher, normal pitcher. It's not Matt Moore in 2011. It's a normal pitcher. What's a good number of pitches? If you're a manager, how how deep would you let him go? If a guy has a realistic shot. Not forget realistic shot. We're, we're, he's done. He, he made it, okay? He oh. struck out 20. He did it. Everybody's celebrating. Uh-huh. And then I show you the pitches. All right? I show you, Ben Lindbergh, smart guy, the pitches. Uh-huh. How many before you go? He shouldn't have done that. That was too many. 125? Really? That's where I'd start to, to wonder. You'd start to wonder, but that's not the same as saying that it was a bad idea. Before I'd condemn it, um, if it's a healthy guy in the prime of his career with no injury indicator, I'd say 135. All right. You're probably a little... Eh, 135 is probably good. Okay, so we've got I mean, your... no one gets there anymore, ever. No, right. Very, very rarely, unless they're throwing a no-hitter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and in the case of a no-hitter, I assume that you would condemn at the same levels? Yeah, I guess so, just because that's the way that baseball has always worked, even though I don't necessarily agree that the achievements are comparable. So you, if, wait, so you would... I'd rather see the the 21 strikeouts. So would you allow, would would you allow the 21 strikeout guy to pitch deeper into a game than the no-hitter guy? Yes. Okay. So, um, all right. So anyway, to get to the point, I wanted to see if we're, if we're missing a bunch of these potential achievements because managers... Uh, don't respect the achievement the way that I do. And if we are setting 125 as the raised eyebrows and 135 as the condemned, 
Uh, there are actually very, very few, if any, instances where a guy could have done this without raising Ben's eyebrows. Uh, and there are a few. So I'll, go, I'll give you a few um, that would have potentially done it without raising Ben's eyebrows. Felix Hernandez, June 2014, seven innings pitched, 15 strikeouts, no runs allowed, pulled after 100 pitches. My pitch estimate would have been 125.2. I don't know uh-huh. why he was pulled in that game. That's a weird, That's because he was throwing a shutout too. Struck out 15, walked one through seven innings. They pulled him at 100 pitches exactly. Huh. All right, I'll see if I can find any reason. Yeah, okay. So then to find another one that could potentially have done it without raising Ben's eyebrows, you have to go all the way back to 2007. Johan Santana, August 9th, threw eight innings, struck out 17. It was a shutout. He walked nobody. It was a two-hitter, and he won that start one to nothing. But they did not let him go out and pitch the ninth. Uh, I had his pitch estimate at 124.6. He had already thrown 112. And so that is that one might have happened without raising Ben's eyebrows, although maybe it is your position that Johan Santana does not meet the qualifications of healthy mid-career pitcher with no injury markers. I'm not sure. He'd won, he basically had won the Cy Young, except everything but winning it two years earlier. So he was a veteran um, yeah. by that measure. It's not like he was new to the sport. Um, but, you know, he was little. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and ironically... I mean, I guess super duper ironically, he maybe did ruin his career by throwing too many pitches in pursuit of a single game achievement that we value less. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Although Mets fans maybe don't value it less. Yeah. I looked at the uh, Hernandez start. He was facing Chris Archer in that game, by the way. The article in the Seattle Times says with his ace at 100 laborious pitches. Oh, come on. (laughs) What? Come on. Laborious? (laughs) He had just had his his toughest inning. He gave up a leadoff single, then he got a strikeout, and then the guy who got on stole second, advanced to third on a wild pitch. So there was some rally against him. McClendon said he was spent. He used everything he had in that seventh inning to get us out of that inning. When you have an emotional inning like that, you are usually going to have a letdown that next inning. That's... Sounds like a Russell Carlton article topic. And I just didn't want that to happen. I'd seen enough. Like always, Hernandez wanted to stay in the game, but he didn't put up much of a fight. Quote, he told me that was a stressful inning for you. That's good enough. And I said, all right, you are the boss. (laughs) That is, uh, now it was, I don't know. I don't, I can't remember if you read this or not, but the game was tied 0-0 at the time. Yes, yes. He did not yet have the lead. Uh, it wasn't a 5 nothing. It ended up being a 5 nothing game, not close, but it was close at the time. So it was more stressful, and there was, if you believe that the reliever is better than the starter, even the dominant starter, uh, then there was reason to go to the bullpen. That said, never have I been more retroactively happy that a manager got fired. <laughs> okay. What a, what a bad move for me. <laughs> for me. Bad move for my enjoyment of this sport. In his eh, 7.15, he could have even got 21. I don't like 20 as much as I like 21. So my standard goes way down when only 20 is possible. Mm -hmm. All right, Josh Beckett, 2004. I, by my estimate, could have have done it in 119 pitches. 
However, he was pulled with two outs in the fourth inning of a game he was throwing a shutout, so I'm assuming that that was some sort of injury or rain delay. Uh, he had struck out eight in three and two-thirds. Let's see, and that was 2004. So, And then 2001, Randy Johnson. No, he threw a complete game and struck out 20. <laughs> All right, he did it in 124 pitches. Uh, so that shows you how rare, in fact, uh, these types of managerial decisions are. Um, and so I'm willing to uh, give managers the benefit of the doubt that they are not uh, uh, cowardly and running away from this. However, unless they we, are Lloyd McClendon. However, yeah, unless they're. However, and then uh, did I say Kluber? Of course, there's Kluber. The Kluber case. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, however, if we switch from Ben's eyebrows raised to Ben's concerns, I'm going to eliminate Michael Pineda, who might have done it in 136. There's Anibal Sanchez in 2013, who had 17 through eight innings, and uh, by my estimate, had a chance to do it in 134. There's Matt Moore in 2011, who had struck out 11 in five innings and could have done it in 134, but was a rookie. Um, And otherwise, pretty much everybody else, I mean, there are lots of these, there are dozens of these starts, and they all pretty much... uh, math out to somewhere between 140 and 160 pitches. And so unless you're willing to let a pitcher throw 140 to 160 pitches, uh, in fact, these generally don't turn out to be worth pursuing. Chris Archer, by my my extra pitches estimated, would have thrown 157 even if things had gone well. Jose Fernandez, 148 even if things had gone well. Tanner Roark, 146 even if things had gone well. I think those are all out of the question. At least Fernandez and Archer are undeniably out of the question. Uh, and so, it, uh, you know, I think it's still an indictment of the way that managers let pitchers pursue no-hitters to these extreme pitch counts. Uh, indictment. I mean, if the pitchers want to do it, whatever. But an indictment of that. Uh, but there's not really a serious call for letting more pitchers go for 20, in my opinion, at this point. Okay. All right, use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to the Play Index to build your own cases against Lloyd McClendon. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. All right, last one from Rich, who essentially wants to ask how quickly announcing stabilizes. He says, how many games or innings do you have to listen to before you know if a radio announcer or team is worth listening to? I have found a couple play-by-play guys that only took me about two innings for me to switch my feed, but overall, I feel like I need about a whole game's worth of listening before knowing if they are any good. I think this is one of those situations where, to give a to go to the book that you and I wrote a little bit, I think we had this conversation about scouting after our first day scouting, um, which is if you take a look at 100 athletes, 100 baseball players from you know a representative sample of the population... It's not that hard to find the the best five, the you know the ninety fifth percentile players, really even before they've done anything. Like we were joking, joking. I don't remember if we were joking that you could tell almost when they were registering which guys were the good ones at the tryout. Yeah, at, yeah, at the tryout, like just how they walk. You know, like and that sounds like that sort of uh, that's uh, I sound like a caricature, but uh, I'm gonna explain. Uh, there's, they're really, you can tell in the way they interact with each other, for instance, in the way that they warm up, in the way that they stretch, in the, 
logo on the shirt that they wore, uh, in all sorts of these ways that are pretty obvious. Like you don't need an eight-day tryout, uh, eight-hour tryout to identify with pretty good confidence. You know, the f if you had ten picks, you could probably pick the five best. Now, that's the easy part. The hard part of scouting is differentiating between those five. And there's a huge difference between those five that is not apparent until you've studied them uh, for a while. And particularly if you're trying to project what they're going to do in 10 years, then it's even harder. And that's where the, that's where the genius of scouting uh, acumen comes in. Uh, it's differentiating between the 97th percentile and the 99th, which is really just differentiating between two standard deviations and three standard deviations. It doesn't seem like that big a deal, but it's the whole deal, right? Uh -huh. And um, so for announcers, I think you know within an inning that, that you might be listening to a garbage announcer. That yeah. like it doesn't take long to say, don't like him, do like him, don't like her, do like her. And that's not that hard to know whether they're above or below average. To really know who the very best is, who you want to spend not just one season with, but 35 seasons with, though... I would guess takes three to six weeks. Uh -huh. And so I would say that there are two time frames, the, the one inning time frame and the three to six weeks time frame. Okay. Yeah, I think that's, that's roughly right. I, you can definitely tell the ones that you don't want to listen to really fast. It's like, uh, it's like one pitcher's fastball or something. Like if you can throw 95, then you just have that ability and, you know, maybe you can't repeat it as well as some other guys can, but but you kind of know that you can throw hard. And it's sort of the same with announcers. If you listen to, you know, one inning of play-by-play, -play, you sort of know if the play-by-play -play person is doing it in the style that you would want it to be done. The other things like the real attachment to a broadcaster, that kind of comes out of, you know, hearing them in blowouts, messing around and not talking about baseball or giving anecdotes about players when they come to the plate or the banter between broadcasters, which might not always be immediately apparent. So I would say you can rule out the, the best case scenario in about two innings. And yeah, you're right. If it's a, a lifelong attachment standard, I think you need uh, at least a couple weeks. All right. So that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Hundreds of you have done so, and we really appreciate it. Today's five Patreon supporters in the spotlight are Will Cohane, Mick Reinhardt, Chris Mitchell, Jim O'Brien, and Derek. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and you can have it in just six days. May 3rd is the official publication date. You can pre-order it now at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookstores. It is, of course, the story of how Sam and I left our comfy computer chairs and ventured into the unknown and potentially hostile territory of a professional baseball team's clubhouse and dugout and tried to run that team, the Sonoma Stompers, last summer. According to Sabermetric Principles, we hope that you will buy the book. You can also rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. Keep the questions coming at podcast at baseballprospectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We will be back with another show tomorrow. But I know Jesus, what the state meant.